Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marcelet. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marcelet. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've got another great episode. We're talking about the Paralympics. The 22 Beijing Winter Paralympic Games will be held from March 4th to 13th. And this episode is coming out a few days before that. So it seemed very timely to talk about how do you become a Paralympic athlete? What's the process? What's the training like? And we have a very special guest here to, to shed some light on that topic for us. But before I introduce our guest, I want to introduce my co-hosts today, Nika and Ishita. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Why don't we start? Uh, why don't you both tell our listeners why you wanted to be part of this discussion today? I wanted to be part of this discussion because one of my goals in life is to hopefully be able to make the Paralympic team for Team Canada and my sport is para swimming. Yeah, I actually just thought this was a very interesting topic. I, when Sean sort of told us about it, I thought I would love to get to know Courtney a bit and see what the whole process of becoming a Paralympic athlete was like. So. Just thought I'd sit in on the discussion and learn as much as I can. I will now introduce our guest. Uh, Courtney Knight has been a friend of mine for many, many years. We have trained together. Uh, we were both at one Paralympic Games together. But I think, Courtney, I don't know. I just realized this morning she has a Wikipedia page. That's pretty impressive. Uh, I believe she's been to five Paralympic Games. She's competed in athletics. Um at the summer Paralympics and then in biathlon, uh, cross-country skiing in the winter Paralympics. So welcome to the podcast, Courtney. Thanks. I didn't know I had a Wikipedia page. So you have a Wikipedia page. That is so cool. <laughs> that is so weird. <laughs> I, I was like, how many Paralympics? I know it's a lot. And for those of you who maybe don't know, like the Paralympics only come around every four years. So that's a lot of Paralympics. That's a lot of years of training, like very, very impressive. I've been to one Paralympic Games. <laughs> and the fact that you did the winter and summer Paralympics, I don't know any other Paralympic or Olympic athletes who've done both. And you did two sports in the winter Olympic in winter Paralympics, which is so cool. Well, thank you. It sounds, I think, more impressive or less impressive than it actually is. Um, I'm not the first one to do it. Um, there's another cross-country scheme named Colette Borgogna, and she did both summer and winter. She did wheelchair basketball and competed in Sydney, and then she transitioned to cross-country skiing as well. And then for Olympians, there's people like um, Cindy Clausen, who did cycling and speed skating. So nice thing is, is that all of us are women. There must be men that have done it, but all I can think of is women. So yay. Yes. Girl power. Yes. I think that's one of the things that sort of 
pushed Courtney and I together over the years because we were sort of, um, weren't very many female athletes at the time that we were training in British Columbia at the elite level. So we were, we were kind of representing often and trained together. And I, although she started first and continued after. So (laughs) I think it was really nice that you mentioned that because there are, or when I was training, I always trained with men from the time I started with track and field. And then when I switched over to cross country, there were more women definitely in cross country, but for all my years in track and field, I only ever trained with men. So it was really nice to have people like yourself, Sean, that were also pursuing sport at a high level and mm-hmm. was a woman. So that was yeah. really nice. Yeah, no, I, similar, a little bit similar for me, especially in the cycling days. I, I was the only female on the national, the female, yeah, on the national cycling Paralympic team. Now that I think about that, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> okay. So when did you start doing sports? Like take us back. I started doing sport when I was in elementary school. I was really competitive as a kid, like in everything I did, I was very competitive. Um, you know, my mom will remind everybody that I did an obstacle course in like grade three and was really upset that I didn't win it. Um, so just was always competitive. And then in, but when you're in school and you're visually impaired, and I was the only visually impaired student in the school, and I had an itinerant teacher, but they didn't and do any adaptations for me when it came to sport. So I ran cross country, I did cross country skiing, I played basketball and volleyball. But I distinctly remember my basketball coach saying to me, like, I missed a shot. And she was like, oh, you really shouldn't be on this team. And I was like, well, I didn't see that she was going to pass me the ball. Like, I didn't know. And, mm. you know, I said, if, but nobody would adapt it, right? Like, it, all they had to do was have my teammates call my name first. So I'd have an idea of where the ball was coming from. And then I would have been better. But nobody thought to adapt that. And then for sports like cross-country skiing, like I remember I was supposed to ski 5K and I skied seven and a half because I missed the trail signs because I couldn't see them. And nobody ever thought, hey, maybe we should send somebody out with her. Um So I found that really hard because I so wanted to be in sport, but it was very frustrating at the same time. I was lucky that my parents put me into, um, I did pony club and 4-H because we lived in the interior. And so I was able to use my horses, my eyes, which was great. Um, But my parents were really good as they never told me I couldn't do anything. I did barrel racing and pole bending. And these are all like high speed events on a horse. And I, my mom would say to me afterwards when I was older that she couldn't watch me because she was worried that something bad was going to happen. But at the same time, she didn't feel like she could say to me, well, you can't do that because everybody else my age was doing it. So why couldn't I? So that was really hard. Um, But then when I got into grade eight, my family had moved to Tumblr Ridge and I still was really competitive. And in grade seven, I'd figured out I was good at throwing a discus because I could out throw the boys. Now, I was in a school of like, I think, 70 kids. So that is no claim to fame. But at the time, I was like, yay, something I'm good at. And so when I got into grade eight in a different high school in Tumblr Ridge, I had a really supportive PE teacher who did know how to make adaptations for me and did a fantastic job at it. But it was because he'd already had a visually impaired person um, who was four years older than me. So I was grade eight, he was grade 12. And that was Jason De La Salle. So everything was easy for me then because they'd been there, done that. And he ended up being the track coach and really encouraged me. And 
I ended up going to BC Games because of that. Um, not as an athlete with a disability, but for the able-bodied games. And because Jason was there and he had been connected with BC Blind Sports, he basically said to them, hey, there's another one up here. And I was really, really shy when I was in high school. Like, didn't talk to anybody. Um, and so I wouldn't talk to him. <laughs> but he was really good about going to blind sports and advocating for me. And so through that, I got connected with a coach in Vancouver and from there it started to be like hey let's try and make the games for Barcelona in 92 and it wow. went from there I didn't know you ended up in the same high school as Jason that's crazy what are the it, chances it, not only that because Tumblr Ridge at the time was really small but the fact that we both were in track and field we both have albinism and you know yeah. we both wanted to compete at elite level like seriously a, a whole lot of stars had to align for that to happen and if I hadn't been connected with Jason I wouldn't have ever been connected to sport I don't think I would have just sort of continued on that whole journey of well this is fun but it's really frustrating and I wouldn't have gone anywhere if Ugh. you don't mind me asking do you have a partial vision so if you want to be technical about it my vision is about 20 over 200 so what I try to explain to people is what that means that if Someone who has perfect vision and I are standing next to each other and we're looking at an object that's exactly the same and their object is 200 feet away from them and my object is 20 feet away from them, we're getting the same level of detail. So I can't read street signs. I can't read menus at Starbucks that are up above. Um, if somebody I know really well walks past me on a street, I'll recognize them, but I think it's more because I'm recognizing their their body movement as opposed to them visually but if it's someone that I meet once or twice I could easily walk past them on a street and not rec recognize them and light sensitivity right is a factor yes, so competing yeah uh does that impact your skiing when the uh, sun like reflects off the snow yes very much so the way that I compensated for that is I would wear yellow glasses and it actually it's not when the sun is out when the sun is night like the blue sky day that's actually not the worst time because you still then will get natural shadows which helps define where the tracks are it's actually when the light is really flat that makes it harder because it's still reflecting but there's no shadows then um, so I would wear yellow tinted sunglasses and that really would help give a little bit of distinction. And then I always wore sunglasses when I competed always. So on a, for like athletics on a day, like what, what, what would you be hoping the weather would be for a big competition? What would be the ideal for you? Um, I was, I started off as a discus thrower, so rain was no fun. <laughs> because yeah. uh, it made the circle slippery. Um, so I always wanted no rain, which I think every athlete wants. Um, but I would like it to be sunny, but I would prefer the sun to be behind me so right. that I was never, ever actually having to look into it. Um, the worst was when the sun was directly across from the direction I was trying to throw, because then at the end of my throw, I'm looking into the sun. And yet I'm also trying to orient where I am in the circle so I don't follow my throw. Mm. Uh, that's so interesting. I never actually really sat down and thought about how weather could actually potentially like impact visually impaired athletes. Oh, I think it has a much bigger impact than our sighted peers. I mean, obviously bright sunshine in your face is hard for everybody, but if you're visually impaired, I think we use other cues too to help us 
figure things out. Like I said, I use the shadows to find where the tracks are and where somebody who said it would probably just be like, oh, the tracks are right there. Like, what are you looking for? So I think it does make a difference. You got to do some like, like you did pentathlon. Did you do decathlon as well? No. So for track and field, for able-bodied athletes, the combined events for women is the heptathlon. So that's seven events. Hmm. In the Paralympics, we do pentathlon, which is five. So the two events that we drop are high jump and hurdles. Nice. Um, hurdles would be interesting. <laughs> hurdles, actually, I got to, as part of our training, like, because hurdles is really good for timing. And so we actually did a fair bit of, like, hurdle drills as part of our training. And I actually loved it because it's also very predictable, right? Like, the hurdles are always in the same spot at the same height. It's not mm -hmm. like they randomly move around. So hurdles I actually really enjoyed. But yeah, so they took that out. So the events that I did were, um, it was done over one day and the order was long jump, shot put 100, discus 800. So I'm thinking about long jump, for example, and my own, my only experience really is like high school track, you know, like what you had to do in gym class, but you're, you're running, running, running. There's a certain line that you jump from, you can't go past it. You don't want to go ahead of it because then you're not going to go as far. You're not, it's not going to count. Like how you must've had to just like kinesthetically memorize that. Or could you see that line? Did you have to do something to make sure you could see it? How did you do that? I, I mean, I could see the line when I got close, but all it was, and I think even able-bodied athletes do this, you put in what are called check marks. So you practice with your coach setting up how many strides it's going to be from the time you start to the time you end. And you have check marks. I had uh, three check marks. So I had my starting check mark and then a mark that I knew, okay, like now you should be at the speed you want. And then the third one was, okay, you're three strides from the board. Mm -hmm. And then that way you knew, and you just do enough of it in practice that you're relatively accurate in competition. Though I did go to one meet. Um, we had world championships in Quebec city and I asked an official to hold my tape measure for me so I could put my check marks in. And they held it on the side of the board that was closest to the pit where you land. Oh. And I didn't know that because all my check marks were from the, what we call the front of the board, which is the furthest side away from where the landing surface was. And so in the pentathlon, you only get three jumps. And if you don't get a mark, then you have zero points and then it affects everything. And I couldn't figure out why I was so off. And oh, then... No. And then on my last jump, I back, cause Don kept telling me he was my coach. So he kept saying like, you're these many inches over. So I finally was able to get it right. And it wasn't a great jump, but at least I got something in. So yeah, oh. check marks were really important. <laughs> really, wow. really important. Do you know why high jump is cut from pentathlon? I think, cause I do think there's, not at the Paralympics, because there's so many, there's so few events now for people who are visually impaired in track and field. Um, but it is an event. Um, but I think it's just the combination of, it's more difficult, I think, for people who are visually impaired. And so therefore, if you're going to do a combined event, why add that extra layer where you're going to reduce the size of the field even more by putting something in that's really hard, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was like always my favorite part of uh PE when we did track and field was high jump me too actually I got to use a rope instead of the bar though so it wouldn't hurt if I knocked it down 
I also have a distinct memory of like making my school's track team as an alternate and like really hoping that one of my classmates would like get injured so I could go. That's <laughs> not really the best way of thinking and no one got injured, thankfully. But uh, it's very cool hearing your story so far. I actually relate to a lot of what you said in your elementary school um, about playing basketball because I played basketball for like, God, like over six, seven years. Um, and my vision is 20 over 400 to 500. So I have a lot of that same experience of having to push for things to be accessible in a way and no one really knowing how to do it. And then eventually having to leave because it wasn't working out for me. So a little bit unfortunate in that, but um, you kind of mentioned that you've done a few sports here and there. So I'm curious about what your training process has been like for each of them and how they differ. So for track and field, because I was a pentathlete and a discus thrower, both of those are considered speed and power events. So other than the 800 in pentathlon, all of those events require you to be quick. So um, did a lot of work on building up in the fall. We do a lot of work on building up an endurance base. So I remember that our warmups would be like, we'd go run 5k and then we come back and do track work that was speed-based, but of a longer distance. So I think the hardest workout I ever did was we ran 5k for warmup. Then we did some mobility drills and then we ran 10, 200s um, and then ran another 2k to cool down. So nice. I think that was my hardest workout that I ever did for track from a running perspective. Um, but I was, when I was, really competitive like leading up to Sydney I was training six days a week often twice a day so Monday Wednesday Fridays we'd go to the gym and lift weights and then in the afternoons on Monday Wednesday Friday we'd be at the track and would just rotate through different events so I always each workout I would spend time on at least two different events so maybe long jump and my starts for the hundred or I would do shot put and discus but it was always just a mix and then would always finish off workouts with something that would help me in the 800. So often it would be like I'd run 10 times 100 meters at my 800 meter pace. So that was mostly how track would work. And it would change over the, the type or the time of year based on what my coach was planning for us. So like I said, the falls was more like endurance building. And then we'd get more technical starting in the spring. And then as we got closer to competition, our workouts would end up being more focused on speed. So doing more shorter distance, but higher intensity work. Um, when I transitioned to cross-country skiing, it was completely opposite because I'm now supposed to be skiing like 5, 10, and 15K. So it's much less power and much more endurance, which I hadn't really developed that type of base for it. So I was never great at the 10 and 15K distances for cross-country skiing, but I was strongest in the sprint event and the 5K just because it was more like power, power endurance space as opposed to just strictly being endurance. Um, for skiing, I did a lot of more longer distance. So the furthest training run I ever did, I ran, oh, 20K. And so I ran from my house to Burnaby Lake, ran a lap around Burnaby Lake, which is 10K, and then ran to the Nature House and back, which is about 5K. Um, but that was the longest one I did. And then the longest I have ski I ever did is I skied 40K in one workout and then promptly hit the wall at the end where I literally could barely stand up because I literally had used everything in the tank and was like, I need to go sit down. <laughs> so wow. it wow. was long, um, but I loved it. And I think what I loved most was that I always enjoyed my training partners. 
I was very competitive and I definitely wanted to do well, but I always seemed to have people to train with that I enjoyed their company. Um, and we would push each other in a friendly way. It was never competitive and mean spirited. It was always like, Hey, I'm going to beat you in this one. And whoever one would be like, you know, ha I got you. And you joke and carry on. And so that was always nice to be in training groups that were so supportive. And I think that's why I enjoyed it because here I'd been competing in high school sports and feeling like I was never quite getting the adaptations that I needed. And then all of a sudden I found my people that wanted the same thing that I was, they understood why I needed to do things differently. And not only that, but they would help me problem solve so I could do it. So it was really enjoyable that way. So, so important, you know, because when you're a disabled athlete, those elite competitions don't happen very often. I mean, maybe more, I don't know, maybe more in, in track than in, in cycling, for example, but we would have one international competition a year and the rest of the time and nationals, but I was the only female, so wasn't really racing anybody. So like, if you don't enjoy the training, the, the competing is, is like not the major part of what you do, right? You've got to enjoy the training part because that's the majority of your time is spent doing that. And if you, yeah, if you don't like the people you're training with, then it's not going to go well. Definitely. Absolutely. I ran a lot of competitive 800s by myself because <laughs> it was yeah. like, there's no other visually impaired athletes. And I wasn't fast enough to run with the able-bodied athletes. So I'd start with them and then end up running by myself. But, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that you had a good group of people to spend the time with before and after all those com competitions was what made it worthwhile. Yeah. It sounds like you have a lot of discipline. I, I maybe yes and maybe no, but it was something that I loved so much that it didn't feel like I had a lot of discipline. It was because I really wanted to go to the Paralympics and I always had objectives as to what performance I wanted to put in. So when I went to the Paralympics, I knew like what my goal was for how far did I want to long jump, what my time was for the hundred, how far did I want to throw a discus, what I wanted to run in the 800. So when every day you feel like you're working towards that goal, it doesn't feel like discipline. It feels like progress. Okay. So along those lines, I want to ask you like the sacrifices that you made in order to do your sport and be your best, because I, I, I definitely felt like I made sacrifices at that stage in my life. Um, I enjoyed what I was doing and I wanted to do well, but, um, did you feel like you were sacrificing? Oh yes, most definitely. Um, I missed big family events because I was either competing or at a training camp, I didn't get to be as social with people as I probably wanted to because, you know, I can't, you know, I've got track tomorrow morning at eight and I've got homework to do for university and I've got to get that done first before I can go out and be social. Um, I didn't get to spend as much time with my family as I wanted to because, you know, they live in the rural BC and it was hard to go and train. And in Vancouver, I could get to the track by myself and train. But when I went to stay with anybody else, I couldn't, I had to rely on them to take me into town so I could run on a really bumpy soccer field. Like it just didn't work out and I found it harder. So I just made the choice that, no, I'm going to focus on my training more now and later I'll get the family part. And that's part of the reason why I retired is because I was tired of never being home leading up to the games in Vancouver. I was home for two weeks between the, end of December and the end of the games. And so with end of March. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's definitely a sacrifice. Even like 
you're not just an athlete while you're competing. You're an athlete 24 hours a day, right? You have to think about what you're putting in your body. You have to think about how much sleep you get and when you go to bed and when you're waking up and, and you, you can't show up for your workouts and feel crappy and tired and hungover or whatever, because you're not going to perform well. So no. And if you do show up and you're not feeling great because you made bed choices, those workouts get that much harder. And that is no fun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yes. I can attest to that. Since it took up like so much of your life, I'm very curious, like how was making that decision to retire like for you? Oh, well, it, it wasn't that hard because I made my first Paralympic Games in 1992. I qualified for 2010. So was that 18 years? So I felt like I had done everything I wanted to do. And just cross-country skiing especially required a lot more travel than track and field because, you know, you're looking for snow. So for a couple mm-hmm. of years, I got to go to Finland because they have an indoor ski tunnel. And I got to ski in a little indoor like I said but it was just like tracks back and forth and they would store snow over the summer but we would go there for a couple weeks of training whereas with track and field I could be down the block you know and there's a stadium that I could train at so it was way more travel and I was tired of the travel I was tired of also the politics that go with sport and I was just like no it's not fun anymore so I'm done um, since, since you mentioned the politics, uh, <laughs> can you, and this is a big question and I totally don't know how you're going to tackle it, but can you explain classification a little bit and how this works? Like, how do they classify disabled athletes and how do you qualify and that whole piece? Okay. So for each type of disability, has a classification system. So for blind and visually impaired, we have three categories. And the very Cole's note version of it is that someone who has no usable vision is a B1. Someone who has a little bit of usable vision is a B2. And both B1s and B2s in track and field and in cross-country skiing must ski with a guide. Um, And then B3s, which is where I fall, have the most usable vision, but still are visually impaired, and they have the option to ski with or without a guide. Uh, Relating to that a bit, actually, I did have a question in whether or not uh, you chose to um, compete with a guide, and if you didn't, kind of what, what made your decision for you? For track and field, I didn't need one, um, because tracks are really nice, and they're very predictable. They're all flat, and if you stay in your lane, you're good to go. Um, so I didn't use a guide there, but for cross-country skiing, absolutely. I tried skiing initially without a guide because I was like, oh, no, I've done stuff in track and field. I'll be fine. I don't need a guide. And then in one of my first ski races, it was just a community-level thing. And one of my teammates, her name was Mary Benson. She was racing too. And I literally remember skiing up behind her and going, Mary, I can't see where I'm going. I'm just going to follow you. So I did. And then I was like, nope, I need a guide. So from then on, I always skied with someone. How was that for you? Never having needed one before, was it an adjustment that someone else was always there when you were competing? No, because I saw it as if I'm going to maximize my performance, I could ski without a guide knowing that I'm probably going to take wrong turns and I'm going to be slower because I can't see what's coming. Mm -hmm. So with cross-country skiing, 
if you're, you change your technique based on the terrain, but if you're reacting to the terrain to be like, oh, whoops, now I'm going uphill, you've already lost those couple of seconds because you're now having to adjust when other people who see it coming are going, oh, I need to speed up because I see that I'm going to have to go uphill. Mm-hmm. So I saw it as a way that, no, I'm going to actually be improving my performance by using a guide. Plus, I also like the concept of doing it as a team. I was very lucky in that all the guides I had were always really good at being collaborative. Um, I skied with one man and two women. Um, they were all great. Like I just were really supportive and they also really let me dictate how we were going to race. It wasn't them telling me what I was going to do. It was me saying, hey, this is what I want to do and here's how I need you to support me. And they were all good about doing that. I, I'm very curious about something. Um, so I've been watching the Olympics and each time I do, uh, I just get so nervous for them. Uh, I can't like, I kind of have to like cover my eyes cause I'm like, oh, are they gonna land the jump? Like uh, I'm just sitting there stressing. Um, so I'm wondering as an athlete um, who's been on like a national stage and having to compete, uh, how, how do you deal with nerves and how do you combat that when you're competing? Uh, the first time I went to the Paralympics, I didn't cope well because it is overwhelming. There's, you feel so much pressure and there's so many new experiences that it just is like, wow, I can't believe I'm on this level of competition and I'm at this amazing facility and it's very, very overwhelming. But then as you compete, I think you just develop a level of maturity where you understand what competition is and it just becomes another competition it's more it's important but you also understand that if you stress about it too much you actually are probably going to negatively affect your performance so you learn to just take it and maximize your performance in the moment and try not to let that get to you if that makes sense I think one of the best lessons I ever learned was that in pentathlon you could not stress about a bad performance because if I had a bad long jump and I carried that stress of oh why did you screw up how did you make that mistake it would take my focus off my upcoming events and then I would have a bad pentathlon in everything. So I learned after a while, it took a while, but I learned that I needed to do a performance, accept it as being good or bad, learn something from it, whether it was good or bad and carry on. You say that, like you make it sound so easy. It's so, I feel like the mental piece of competing is almost as hard as the physical, like it, it's just, it's a tough one. I had to do some work with sports psych to kind of, you know, combat that. Like when I played goalball, if you let in a goal at the international level, you're probably going to be benched. So then you feel worse (laughs) about the mistake you made. And then you're like, when you get back on the court, you're so scared of making a mistake again, but you're right. The more you think that way, the more mistakes you're going to make. It's so hard. With me being on an individual sport, I, that, that is to me less pressure because mm. you're right. Like if you let a goal and it is, I mean, if I have a bad long jump, my coach isn't going to walk over and be like, you're benched. Like, yeah, yeah. he's going to be like, Hey, go get ready for the hundred. It's next, like shake it off, right. keep moving. So I think that is a bit of a different dynamic, but, and I'm not, it took me a long time to learn. And I did the same thing. I had worked with some sports psychologists for a while. And then I just had a really good coach that was constantly like reiterating that message, like, you know, he said, I'd rather you come, rather you come last with a personal best than first with a bad performance. Mm. And I was like, okay. And then I also was really lucky in that the training group that I had, 
they all share the same philosophy. So I had a bad reputation of when I was throwing discus, I would get really frustrated if I couldn't get something technical down. And Jason would always say to me, you know, don't think meat, just throw, like stop worrying about it and just do it. So I was getting that message, not just from my coach, but my teammates and then worked on it myself. Cool. Do you have any pre-competition rituals that kind of help with nerves? Mm, I just always made sure that I knew what my warm-up was going to be. I went into competition with the idea that you can only control the things that you have control over. So I can control what's in my bag. I can control what I eat. I can control the people I talk to, but I can't control the temperature. I can't control what time I compete at. Um, I can't control how other athletes are performing. So I need to just focus on myself. So I just made sure that my pre-competition routine was very, very focused and very, very predictable. I knew what I had to do at what time. It was never a guessing game. Um, It was even like when I competed in Australia for the Paralympics in 2000, I knew that I was going to have Cheerios and apples between every event because that's what I knew I had tested in workouts. I knew that would, would give me enough energy and yet not make me feel, you know, really heavy and slow. So I just had everything sorted out as to what I was going to do. How would you say being an elite athlete has helped in other areas of your life? Oh my gosh. Um, I think the biggest way is that when I started in track, I really was shy. I'm not kidding. I hardly spoke to anybody. And I think I was shy because I had a really hard time in elementary school. I got bullied a lot because of my vision. And I never found a peer group that truly accepted me. And so I just sort of withdrew and was like, well, I'm just not going to talk to anybody because what's the point? And then through track, I found people that completely understood what it was like to be visually impaired, accepted me for it, um, celebrated my accomplishments with me, were crying when I was having a bad time with me. And it just made me feel so much more confident. So now I know people that meet me now are like, really, you were shy? Like, now you never shut up. So (laughs) it it shaped who I was as a person because I had so much more confidence. I'm a huge believer in the power of sport, not at a competitive level, but just for learning life skills. And it helped me pick my career. So it's basically made me who I am. Do you watch the Paralympics on TV, Courtney? A little bit. I, but I, okay, that sounds really bad, doesn't it? Fast Paralympian <laughs> no, does not okay. watch Paralympic Games. Um, I don't. And you know what? I've never been a spectator. Mm. Even when we would have high performance track meets come to Vancouver, like there's a Harry Jerome meet, which brings in athletes that are like the top Canadian athletes from across the country, plus, you know, us and the Bahamas. And so we're talking like athletes that are competing at the Olympic games and people would offer me texts and be like, no, I don't really want to go. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't know why I've never been a spectator. I would much rather be participating than spectating. So interesting. Okay. And I still do that with the, with the Paralympics and even the Olympics. I'm just, I want to know the results. I'm happy to hear, you know, Canada wins hockey and that part, but I'm not going to sit and actually watch them. Are you still, do you still train? Do you have any aspirations for uh, athletics in your future? Okay. So discus throwing is not something that you throw out with friends and go, Hey, let's go throw a discus around. (laughs) No. So no. And I think too, that I'm still really competitive. So I know that if I got into master's competitions, 
it wouldn't be fun because I would be like, well, you know, 10 years ago, I could throw this and now I'm throwing like half that. That's no fun. So I wouldn't find it enjoyable. Um, Cross-country skiing, I would like to get back into, but not again, not to compete, just to go out with friends. Mm -hmm. If I was going to compete, it either would be in, well, I'd actually like to do a triathlon. Um, And I would also like to become a better swimmer. I am a terrible swimmer. I sink faster than anything. Um, And I go with people like you, Sean, that go to a pool and swim laps and make it look absolutely effortless. And I swim one length and go, I think I'm going to die. So... (laughs) I would, I would love to be a better swimmer. Um, but yeah, and right now just, I have circumstances in my life that don't allow me to do, to do any of that. So it's sort of on hold. I do ride my bike to work when I can, which people say, well, you're crazy for doing that, but it's all on a bike route. And what people don't know is that it's, it's a busy enough bike route that there's typically always someone going my speed that I can follow. And mm-hmm. I use them as a guide and they just don't know it. <laughs> so <laughs> it works that. out. <laughs> but I don't ride in traffic. Like I will not ride in traffic. I'm too chicken to do that. That I like my body being intact. And so I'm not that brave. <laughs> oh, well, maybe we can train for triathlon together because I, I want to do that too. That's, that's on my bucket list for sure. But are we talking a short one or a long one? Cause if it's a long one, you're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, I think it's Paralympic sport now we could. <laughs> Go for it, Courtney. (laughs) Oh yeah. Swimming. I would have to, I have to work on the swimming part. I like biking. I like running. Swimming part, unfortunately is first. (laughs) For me, it's the, it's the running. I keep spraining my ankles. Oh no. (laughs) I was going to say like running is the part I don't like. Yeah. I do like running, but I'm it's, it's my weakness for sure. But I think it running depends on what type of running you're doing. So if you were to say to me, go out and run 5k. I would find that very hard and very boring. But if you say to me, go to a track and do repeat work where you're running like hundred meter sprints, that to me is fun. And huh. it's, and I think because it's more engaging in your mind, cause you're like, Oh, okay, I've done, I'm going to do 10. I've done seven and you're timing it. Like, okay, I'm trying to stay on average of like 15 seconds for each repeat or whatever it is. 15 would be way too fast. But like, if you're saying like mm-hmm. 20 seconds, Um, so I think it's, to me, it's more mentally stimulating. Whereas if you're going for a 5k run, unless you're going with someone to run with where you can have a conversation that makes it fun, but to just go out and run 5k, no, within a couple minutes, my brain is going, why are we doing this? This is boring. (laughs) And I don't want to be here. Right. Do you have any advice maybe for parents who are raising kids that are visually impaired, who the kids are interested in sport or maybe youth that are contemplating. I mean, I didn't really start being a competitive athlete until I was 18, which is pretty late um, for all, especially for swimming, which was my sport initially, but yeah, just any advice for people who want to get involved. I think this is talking to my, like my background in kinesiology and sport is the best thing that parents can do is to get their kids as active as possible, doing as many different things as possible, you know, like do running, jumping, throwing things, let them, you know, do swimming and make sure that, especially if they're visually impaired, don't let them do it once and decide they don't like it because it's harder for us. You know, it takes more time for us to figure out what we're doing because we don't always have that person to go, Oh, I see what you're doing. I can copy you. And I think it takes us longer to problem solve some things, you know, like how do you know when you've hit the end of the pool or how do you run with a guide? Those are extra 
skills that someone has to develop before they get comfortable with it. So to only try it once, I think is short changing people because you need more time. And just, my, I can never be more thankful to my parents for never telling me I couldn't do anything. But they were, they were the exact opposite. It was, you can do anything you want. And you want to go ride a horse around barrels, go for it. We're not going to watch you because we're scared, but go do it. Um, <laughs> and I think also parents should be open to figuring out how to adapt things for their child. You know, how do you fit a bike for a kid that's visually impaired? You know, I've heard like tandems where they're not big or the bikes are too big for kids. And I heard of one parent that put blocks on instead of pedals so their kid could then reach it because they could change the height of the blocks. Mm-hmm. So being creative to try and do everything possible so their children can be active. Yeah, such a good point about, you know, try it more than once. I know for myself, I'm I'm definitely the type of person that if I try to do something and I'm not good at it, I don't like that. And I don't, but it's not that I didn't like the thing. It's that I didn't like that. I wasn't good at it. So I have to force myself to keep trying (laughs) because I just know, like, I'm not good at this yet. This is the first time I don't really know what I'm doing yet. And it's going to feel awkward. And then, yeah, eventually after many repetitions, it gets easier. Of course, it starts to feel more comfortable. And at the same time I get better. So, yeah. I think there's a saying somewhere that you have to do something 10,000 times before you can actually say you've mastered it. Mm. So if you do something once, that's a long way away from 10,000. And not that somebody has to master a skill to enjoy swimming, but you definitely do have to get the fundamentals down before you can actually make a decision as to whether or not you like it. And I know people both sighted and visually impaired where they say to me, oh, well, my mom made me do this as a kid. I hated it for the first six months. And then I actually fell in love with it. And now as an adult, I do it by myself because I actually love it so much. Yeah. I more so just wanted to say I found this conversation to be super informative and I really enjoyed listening to your life story as well. Thank yeah, you. I second that. It's It's been really interesting just getting to know you a bit and, and hear your journey and um, definitely some great advice that you're giving. So thank you so much. I third that. Thank you, Courtney. And you can check out her Wikipedia page. This is Courtney <laughs> Knight. <laughs> How many? Okay, so was I right? Is it five or is it six Paralympics? No, I've been to five Paralympics. So I did four summer, one winter. Okay. And how many medals do you have? Three. I have um, a silver in pentathlon from Sydney, a silver in discus in Atlanta, and a bronze in discus from Athens. That's amazing. I have never seen your medals. I want to see them. That's very cool. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, um, sharing your wisdom and advice, and um, let's talk about a triathlon in a few years, okay? Sounds good. <laughs> It'd awesome. be fun. It would be nothing more that I would enjoy than to have you as a training partner. Aww. That would be amazing because I can help you with the running. You can help me not drown. It would be good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, we'll have to make that happen then. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast with a friend, leave us a rating or review, and join us next time. 
This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted, along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca. And also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time.